Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Jerry Keith Gaynor, Managing Editor at The Grio. And I'm your co-host, Shauna Phoenix, Social Media Director at The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, what do we do about the crisis at the border? So, Shauna, before we dive into this week's episode, please tell me, like, what's been on your mind this week? Ciao, honey, ciao. Uh, we we would be remiss if we did not bring up Robert, I believe his middle name is Sylvester Kelly, uh, who, <clears throat> in a win for women of sexual assault, violence, abuse, um, domestic violence, it was a win. Uh, R. Kelly, <laughs> after 20, 30 plus years of being a pretty well-known predator, and I don't got to say allegedly because he's convicted. This is this is true. He is officially convicted. I, I don't got to say allegedly about nothing. Um, he was found guilty on all charges uh, in his, I believe it's a federal case, but it was here in New York. Um, and he, Jesus, he got, he got pinched for racketeering, sexual exploitation of a child, kidnapping, bribery, sex trafficking, like a slew of crazy. Um, and for me, I felt so very happy for the women and girls that he had abused, um, taken advantage of and, and did just really terrible, disgusting, inhumane things to, um, my heart breaks that Aaliyah isn't around for her own justice. Um, my heart still breaks for, you know, people like, uh, Sparkle, you know, who was the, she was his protege and he violated her niece to now, even to this day, some like 20 years later, Sparkle doesn't have any relationship whatsoever with that niece um, who it's suspected that R. Kelly and his team paid off uh, Sparkle's, you know, sister and brother-in-law to basically keep that child silent um, as well as really, I mean, hell, they were still going to R. Kelly concerts and all this other stuff. And um, I believe Sparkle said in her, she did a, a piece just uh, as soon as the news broke with, I believe it's the cut um, where she said anytime when she's tried to bring up R. Kelly to her sister, all her sister would say is like, God forgives girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but what I find myself very angry about still and frustrated are the people that allowed him to do this for so long. And I'm not just talking about like, his handlers and managers and all this other stuff. I'm talking about like even us, you know what I mean? Like, and, and well, hell not us. Cause I was a child when this happened, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like adults who watch this, who made jokes about it. Like, and yes, I laughed at the piss on you video from Dave Chappelle. It was funny, but watching it now, you're just like, nah, bro. Like this, that, that, that wasn't the time for this. You know, the the moment he was out here telling to Ray, well, well, how well, what do you define as teenage? What? <laughs> like, right. What are you talking about? We all saw it. We all saw it. And what my only hope is that this is a moment in society of a couple of days. One, 
where we see something at the onset and we acknowledge that it is irresponsible at the very least. We acknowledge that something in the water ain't clean at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, you know, I, I, I'm going to bring somebody up, uh, you know, Drake. There have been a few questionable uh, acquaintances, acquaintanceships that he's had with minor people. <laughs> and so which I've been like something in the water ain't clean there. We should probably, you know, snip that in the bud sooner than later. We need to, as a society, as a culture, be able to hold, especially those of us in our culture that are doing harm. Like I'm not here to protect black men. I'm not here to protect black women. If you are out here doing effery in the culture in in, in what we're supposed to be doing, like, that man is incredibly talented, but you know what? He's an incredibly talented, convicted abuser. Mm. How about wow. that? And let's acknowledge wow. that. And let's also, let's also stop acting like, oh yeah, well, I can separate the art from the artist and all this other stuff. Can you, can you really? Cause half on a baby is where he's sitting here talking about impregnating like a 14, 15 year old. So you sure you good with that? Right. AJ, nothing but a number is cool with you. Bet. That's fine. Also, for them silly broads, and this is what I mean. I I wrote an article, um, an op-ed, not too long ago about aunties who sometimes still do harm, right? Some of the older, seasoned Black women of our generation who still do harm. Outside of the courthouse, after the conviction, there were several women, uh, R. Kelly supporters, who are like, well, you know, well, Jesus says the answer is, is, is you know, he's Jesus not done yet and free R. Kelly and blah, 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 blah. Y'all are disgusting and you need help. And I would pray that you get to go to therapy and go ahead and like fix whatever that is that's inside of you. Number one. Number two, you're too old. R. Kelly is not going to smash you. But yes, what about you, Jim? What are your thoughts? <laughs> Leave it to Shauna to have some quip. Um, but you know, <laughs> This whole thing, Shauna, it's really, you know, it's been triggering for me personally because I am a, a victim of child sexual abuse. And I know that this is a very complicated, like you mentioned, you know, other artists who have been, uh, you know, seemingly having relationships, friendships with girls who are underage. And this is sociological too. Like, let's not forget that men used to be legally allowed to marry girls. And so we're talking about a a world in which men have been allowed to do things that we know now is wrong. And it's almost disbelieving that even in recent decades, when R. Kelly was very clearly a pedophile, how we as a society, maybe not us individually, were able to look past the very clear red flags that something's wrong here. And, you know, it makes me wonder what if the Me Too movement didn't happen? Like, what if Donald Trump wasn't elected and didn't create this surge of women standing up and saying enough is enough? And so I'm so thankful to see that as a society, as an American society, at least, we are seeing a wave, a shift going on when we talk about protecting women, protecting children. And for me, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Like, yes, I think that him being convicted, there, that is just. But... As a victim myself, like I've had conversations with my therapist in the past about what did, what did I want from my personal experience? Did I, do I want to see my abuser behind bars? Is that going to make me feel better? 
And, you know, some will argue, like, Sule Abrams wrote an op-ed for the Grio uh, talking about restorative justice and how, you know, maybe, and, and, and kind of navigating through this very complicated conversation about, about restorative justice and whether or not that, that is effective for victims. Because when someone is convicted and sent to prison, you're still, the, the victims are still hurt. They're not necessarily restored by seeing that happen. Some people will say, I feel somewhat justice seeing my abuser go behind bars, but I think it goes, it, it, it runs deeper than that. It, it hits you on a, on a psychological, emotional, spiritual level that I'm not sure um, a conviction uh, can truly heal. And, you know, my heart really, you know, goes out to all of R. Kelly's victims. And I hope that they can find some type of peace, but I know that that's going to be probably a lifelong journey. And let's not forget that R. Kelly himself was uh, a, a victim of child sexual abuse as well. And, you know, as a victim myself and seeing the stark difference between someone like me and someone like R. Kelly, it makes you wonder, how does someone become a monster like that? And, you know, I, I don't know, but I, I do know that there's data, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says that one in four girls and one in 13 boys experience sexual abuse. The reality is that we don't know why some people end up being monsters and some people don't. Um, but I do hope, I, don't, I, I actually, as a, as a person of faith, I would say, I do pray that R. Kelly finds uh, healing himself. It doesn't mean that I think that he should not be behind bars. I do have complicated opinions and feelings around prison because I, some people have said openly, I think that it was just, but seeing a black man go to prison still makes me feel some type of way. And so uh, this, this doesn't end because with this conviction, not for these victims and certainly not for us as, as a society because I don't think that we are, I think we're just scratching the surface, honestly, when, when addressing uh, child sexual abuse and how do we as a society respond to that? You're, you're, you're always so zen and so just, just, you're just such a sweetie. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because for me and I, my thoughts on prison are, they're not that complicated. Um, honestly, um, I, I mean, there's, there's certain things that are, um, they combat one another because, you know, there are plenty of innocent black, black and brown people behind bars. There are plenty of black and brown people, especially who have been victim to the prison system because of systemic racism, one and two, you know, just because there's this idea prison is supposed to be rehabilitative. Right. Um, I, though, have an issue uh, with predators in general. Um, and I understand R. Kelly's issues and, you know, he uh, allegedly was, was molested by a family member and there was, you know, a, um, a man in the neighborhood who did so as well, like a female family member and a man in the neighborhood who did so as well. And like his mother took a payment to not press charges against this man or, you know, to not pursue any kind of legal recourse um, with this man who did this thing to her son. So. I get it how R. Kelly, that could have warped his love map in general of, you know, well, it can't because in my mind, I'm like, if he were to really take a moment to sit and think like what I'm doing is wrong. Well, then that means that what my mother did was wrong. 
and that I wasn't cared enough for to not take money, you know, whatever. Um, but even still, uh, there's some predators that I just don't believe that can be rehabilitated. Um, and if R. Kelly really thought that what he was doing wasn't wrong, he wouldn't have gone to the lengths that he went to to do them, you know, and to hide his secrets. Um, yeah, so for me and and just the idea of predators in general, I'm I understand the horrors that he dealt with, but that does not mean that you are allowed to inflict those same horrors upon other people. Uh, but I would, you know, good luck to him, I guess is the best I have. Uh, but let's actually pivot away. Um, you know, since we're talking about horrors, let's talk about the horrors that we've been seeing unfolding at the Texas border. Uh, you know, over the past few weeks, thousands of Haitian migrants seeking asylum here in the U.S. are not only being turned away and deported, but also subjected to inhumane conditions and treatment by U.S. Border Patrol agents. Adding insult to injury is the fact that after denouncing Trump policies on immigration, the Biden-Harris administration is now using some of the same logic and policies to turn migrants away. While we may be separated by water, make no mistake, Black folks here in the U.S. are connected to Haitians in struggle and in culture. To help us dig into that a little bit deeper, Jaren and I will be joined by Marcia L. Dyson, a global social activist, former cultural ambassador to Haiti, and consultant for the Clinton Foundation on the Haitian Rehabilitation Campaign. We're so excited to talk with her in just a bit. You know, Shauna, I can't get the the images, the videos of Border Patrol officers um, whipping and verbally abusing uh, Haitian migrants at the Del Rio border. And it's really ignited this national and international conversation uh, around how we treat, America treats uh, Black migrants at the border and, and how generally we see immigrants in this country. And I know on Dear Culture, you have often talked about being the daughter of immigrants. Um, and I want to ask you, as we begin to have this conversation about Haiti, what did that, what impact did those images have on you? And how does it make you feel as a, as a daughter of an immigrant? Um, well, you're absolutely right. I come from Jamaican and Guyanese people. <laughs> uh, and... Funny enough, and I've asked my parents about like their uh, like migration stories um, who really my, my mom was a teenager when she came to this country. Um, I think about like 18, 19. Um, my father was a kid. My grandmother actually like came here on her own um, around 17, 18 and built an entire life for herself. And I've asked them kind of their thoughts on what they've seen and uh, in, in terms of those images and they've been disgusted. Um, and they're like, you know what the crazy part is when they were coming in, in the, what, what was that? 60s, 70s. Um, they're like, funny enough, it was a lot easier. <laughs> it was a whole lot easier to get to this country uh, than it is right now. I think watching that as just a black person in this in these united states in general um is so par for the course 
I wasn't surprised. Uh, we've seen, hell, I think we've even reported here at the Grio, there was a, a story about um, there were there were police officers who were chasing a man and who hogtied him and, <laughs> and were like dragging him by horse through whatever fields. It's not surprising at all. What I have found surprising are white people's reactions to it. I think that's been probably one of the, like the most illuminating thing. The, the heartbreaking part is most black people, myself, my, my parents, you know, migrants in general, uh, weren't all that, weren't all that surprised by <laughs> Like we weren't, we weren't surprised at all, but the white folks who were just like, Oh my God, look at this. And are we really this way? Yes. Have you not been paying attention? Is George Floyd is the same thing <laughs> as what we're seeing right now. Um, and it, it was very triggering. I quite frankly had to turn it off. Um, I've actually been really disappointed how the Biden Harris administration has been handling this. Um, and then, you know, turning around and, Oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to stop, you know, we're not going to have them the wrangle people up with horses. So the horses were the problem. Not the, oh, okay. Got you. I see how that works. <laughs> but what about you, G? You know, what about like those images? I know you've been doing your own original reporting and trying to get answers from the White House. Uh, what have you, how have you been impacted and what have you been learning so far? Yeah, so I made my debut as a, a as an acting White House correspondent. I went to the press briefing originally um, uh, last week, and at that press briefing, the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, we thought that he was going to give an announcement about the uh, conclusion of this investigation into what happened in Del Rio, but he instead said that you know basically it's ongoing, but it would be it would end quickly. He gave an update in terms of like how many Haitians uh, have been deported, how many Haitians ha are currently still being processed. Um, and he actually thanked and, and, and bigged up CBP uh, for all their service and work, which was very off-putting for a lot of black, black people because it, it, what we saw was, was egregious, right? And so I uh, spoke to some black advocacy uh, immigration groups um, because they actually filed uh, an, a formal letter of complaint to DHS's Office of Civil Rights and Civil Complaints. And in this complaint, they have a list of violations that go way beyond what we saw on, in those pictures, in those videos. And there's basically, so some of those violations were they didn't have enough interpreters uh, there to help migrants communicate, you know, their story so they can, so they can seek asylum. Um, they were uh, they were obviously physically and verbally uh, abused. Um, they didn't allow legal advocates on the ground to help them to get access to migrants. They had pamphlets that were printed out in Creole, in uh, French, and in different languages, so that so that they can tell them you know, what their rights are. And so there are a lot of um, there are a lot of accusations of injustices going on at the border. And now because of these. Um, these violations, they're asking the administration to not only halt uh, deportations and expellings of Haitian and, and other African migrants, because it's not, it were, there weren't just Haitian migrants at that border. They're also asking that they bring back migrants to the U.S. because they're saying that because the, uh, the DHS and ICE violated their own uh, policy, uh, which is basically uh, to have a more humane to have a humane policy when, when dealing with migrants and immigrants, 
that because uh, some of these migrants were, were victims and witnesses to abuses and that they didn't get their just due. And so they are for now just asking to speak to DHS so that they so that they can and asking for these asks like bringing back migrants and halting deportations. And obviously, we know that uh, Haitian migrants have been deported using uh, Title 42, which the Trump administration uh, instituted. Uh, it's, and it's not uh, immigration policy. It's actually a public health policy. So because of COVID uh, to protect um the migrants themselves and protect uh, Americans. Uh, Title 42 has been is still in place. Um, and so this is really ongoing. I went to the White House this week trying to ask Press Secretary Jen Psaki um, what the if the administration got word of this letter and will they adhere to these asks. Um, she did not call on me. And even despite Jen Psaki telling me on Twitter on, uh, last week that she would call on me and I would get my questions asked, she did not call on me. And I have a hunch that my report over the weekend about these black advocacy groups following this complaint has something to do with it. Uh, but these, these advocacy groups are like, if we don't get our ass met, we, we will explore other options and it may be legal options. So I'm paying close attention to what's happening. Uh, this is not going away. And I know that advocates and activists and especially us at the GRIO and other black media outlets and black journalists are not going to let the administration uh, skirt past this because this is a much larger issue about immigration and how we how we treat black immigrants in particular um so we'll see what happens but it's it's what's clear is that something needs to change and that there are clear issues with our immigration policies and so even though trump is not in office we're still seeing um humanitarian violations and that speaks to a systematic issue and with that said there's so much to understand about the U.S.'s relationship with Haiti and how we got to this point. Luckily, we are joined by someone who is a bit of an expert on this subject and has dedicated a large part of her professional life to cultivating aid and support for Haiti. Marcia L. Dyson is the president of Marcia L. Dyson LLC, an exclusive national and international consultancy firm. Dyson is also the founder of Women's Global Institute LLC, and the author of the forthcoming book, Irreverent, Memoir of a Grown-Ass Woman. Marcia, welcome to Dear Culture. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Uh, so I kind of just want to jump right in. Um, you know, there are a lot of our listeners, and I can even speak for myself, who are not as uh, well-versed, I'll say, in, you know, all of, all of the history and issues um, as it relates to Haitian migrants and just the United States relationship with Haiti in general. Um, can you give us and our listeners some context around why we're seeing this surge of Haitian migrants now and what role has the United States played in creating this, this crisis? And we only have 30 minutes. I know. <laughs> Well, first of all, the migrants that came to Del Rio uh, in the past week were really refugees who had escaped uh, Haiti, and I'll call it escape after the assassination of the former president, right? And also, they were also hit with a hurricane and an earthquake. So there were three catastrophic events that happened in Haiti, which sent the refugees not initially to the borders of Del Rio, but 
to South America, particularly the country of Chile. Because I have people on my Instagram asking me, well, this is an island. How did they end up going, you know, get over there to Central America, get on into Mexico? And I'm saying, duh, they <laughs> migrated to Chile for a safe uh, refuge. And the way I see it, it's almost like a Juneteenth scenario. Why the Haitians at the very end are the ones at the border. I imagine that they were reading the news because or watching their cell phones or some information that 200,000 people indiscriminately were at the border of the United States and they start making their tracks. So that's the reason to me, they were the last in at the border and the first ones to be vilified and dehumanized as we have never seen it before without any leaders crying and doing photo ops about the situation until the social activists start raising the righteous indignation and hell at that border. Okay, okay. Um, and Marcia, you know, the Grio has been following this, this story for, uh, for over a week now, and I've even done some original reporting on this. And when the images and the video of of border patrol officers mishandling, mistreating Haitians, and I'm saying mistreating lightly, um, it was very triggering for many Black Americans. And I think it's really important for us to connect the dots between what is going on with Haitian and African migrants and Black Americans. What do you, why should we see this as a Black American issue and not just a Black immigrant issue? Let's get right to the R. It's racism. Even in 1994, when uh, I was at Brown University, there was an issue with Haitian immigrants coming over based upon some discord within the country. There was always a push by Cubans were able to come over and seek forms of rescue, uh, refuge, even though it was difficult. Think of Elian Gonzalez. There has been no Haitian black child who has been given a national attention and public recognition of the demise that they face in their particular country. And when we look at the history of Haiti, first of all, we have to understand there, is a, there was a systematic plan for Haiti, and that was for every white person to whom they touch with their revolution to undermine them and to remind Blacks everywhere in the world that we are going to punish you because you do not use Caesars or Napoleon's valor of war to win your liberation, which was frightening. And that would be amazing to most people when you think how small Haiti is in the scheme of things. But it is basically, there's a plan that I, I wish I could pull up for you, but I will make sure that you have it that says what you have to do to Haiti. Remember, Haiti, most people think just beat the French. That is not true, right? And it wasn't just Toussaint L'Ouverture. It was Dessalines, it was uh, Pinot, but they beat the British and Spain and they beat, of course, the French. And that was a big slap back to European. And people also have to remember that because of them winning against Napoleon, that America, rather than pushing them back, should let them in that same area that they were, our government was able to purchase called the Louisiana Territory. You would think that the first immigrants that expanded our nation would be the first ones allowed in, and that was because of the Haitians' valor of war. But the racism is blatant. Even when I worked for a president foundation right after the earthquake in 2010, I raised hell because it was supposed to be the rehabilitation of Haiti. And my thought was that, you know, Haitians should definitely be part of their, their rebuilding of their country. In fact, we held that meeting at a hotel 
that was 60% destroyed, rebuilt to European American standards for earthquake stability by Haitians, and no Haitian was let in the room. And I raised hell with that president and broke off from him because it was blatant racism and gave him a stack high of qualified Haitians who could rebuild their country. Who was in that room? Every rich white person you may know around the world from Canada, Japan, Italy, France, Europe, even Carlos Slim, who at that point was the wealthiest man in the world from Mexico who lived in Mexico City. And I wanted to make sure that a Haitian, not, and even before the African-Americans, I wanted to make sure that we had chance to extend our humanitarian as well as benefit from the stabilization of Haiti. But what really pissed me off to show you there was racism, when I was on a congressional delegation, you stop me and ask questions, I'm on a roll here. With Congressman Conyers, I'm going up toward the border of the DR and I'm on with the head of the USAID, that entity that's supposed to help serve not only Haiti, but other countries in crisis, right? And this woman tells me, and I'm Southside Chicago, and she's going to get a Southside pimp slap. She would say, you could put a trillion dollars in Haiti and not get anything out of Haiti. Now, we are going up the cliff. You ever been on Highway Route 1 in California going up and you see in the ocean, you want to throw somebody off, but I want to live and tell this story. But that's how I felt about it because it's how we give the money. Yes, we have given millions or billions or billions of dollars to Haiti, but how do we do it? The rich white people and a lot of them from our government go over there with their friends and they build off the poverty. They give them charcoal potties, right? They give them no infrastructure. So of course, Haiti would not grow. And I think that when we look at what happened to Israel in the Arab, Arab, uh, Arab land, they could rebuild with infrastructure, or even Las Vegas, right? And why? how come Haiti has not been given that form of infrastructure, given the billions of dollars that we have given them? Because they want to keep them poor. They want to keep them in chaos. And that is all to me, uh, the part of racism and disproportionately Haiti has over 10,000 nonprofits, which is per capita more than any other place in the world, because people take advantage of Americans relationships with nonprofits that you could raise a billion dollars. But by law, you're only entitled to really give five to 10 percent. That's why Haiti is always poor. That's what corrupts its leadership. But that's also a slap in the face of the people who come to the cavalry as a cavalry to Haiti, why there's really the continuation destruction around earthquakes because the instability of the partners and that's sustainability and deliverability. Oh, wow. Listen, you already I, I had my next question was, you know, if you kind of alluded to it already, uh, you know, was working with the Clinton Foundation on the Haitian rehabilitation campaign and. Uh, thank you. Like you, you, you broke it down, sister, uh, you know, because I think so many of us, especially, you know, after the hurt, the earthquake and everything else. And you're like, I, I, there's, there's Red Cross and there's all these organizations that are collecting money. Everyone's collecting money, but none of these Haitians have seen those funds. Um, I guess one of my questions would be, what can we do just as regular degular folks, you know, <laughs> but who, who have empathy and who have uh, just a connection to this country simply by the fact of we're seeing other Black people having to endure this, having to go through this. What can a lay person, I'll say, what can we do to, ha- to help the Haitian community in, in the country of Haiti? First of all, keep them on watch with our government 
who in the past have not, like I said, done well with them. I remember when cholera broke out, I was in Haiti. And at that time, it was well past the earthquake and Haiti was promised $1.4 billion. They never saw it. I went personally to a Middle Eastern embassy when I found out that they were going to donate $10 million to Haiti and found out that they gave it to the Clinton Foundation, right? And the ambassador told me that they only got like 10% of that money. And I was furious about that. So I think the thing that we can do is what we did in the aftermath of seeing them in Del Rio, like with Reverend Sharpton, with Tamika, who did bring some items with her and not just her social activism for photo op and other individuals. It's like keeping watch over the people because they are us. I've traveled everywhere that Black people are in this world from Brazil, you know, to the continent of Africa. But when I think about Black pride, it really isn't Haiti. When I would go to Haiti any given day because you remember who we are. The people are resilient. It's not just by prayers. I mean, 300,000 people died in 35 seconds. And not a push off of the 3,000 that died in 9-11 where everybody had to go get therapy. Can you imagine? And without modern equipment to see these people digging with their hands, with inferior equipment, trying to get these squashed bodies out and to rebuild their life is a testament of strength that reminds of who, of who we say we are as strong Black people in America. We can take a lesson to see just how strong we are by going to visit Haiti, right? And it's not just poor Haiti. You know, I tell the African leaderships and other leaders in Black countries, there's nothing poor about any country that has a resources that are natural or they're mineral-based, right? It is governance like it, where, where it is anywhere else. Now, surely Haiti had a long Black leadership than any other country, right? Even the African countries are just celebrating more than or less than 70 years of liberation and Haiti more. But because of the pushback with France, you know, that they were just uh, allowed not to pay reparations for, for them being free. Can you imagine that? We want reparations for slavery and France want the Haitians to pay them because they lost monies because of their produce loss and the Black do uh, dollars and labor. So the best thing that we can do is what we do here is to keep them on alert. Uh, the photo ops are gone, it may die down in Del Rio, but the people are still under that bridge. They were de deported faster than a speeding bullet. Why is that? So when we talk about immigration and policies, you know, I'm a humanitarian and I understand and traveling the world from the Middle East all over that every country has borders. Right. But because we're supposed to have this humanitarian heart with those flux of 200,000 people, the ones before got in without the whips and horses all of a sudden disappearing, it was fine. But when the black people showed up, the Haitians people showed up, I call that border inequity. Either we're going to have border equity or we set firm our immigration policies good, better, ugly, that everyone would face. And there's a format to which they have to apply. And right now, I think because of the devastation, the triple uh, effect of the hurricane assassination and an earthquake that they had, that Haitians should be of the first on the list if we're going to let anybody in this country, not just because they're Black, but when you look at the circumstances of why they're fleeing, their country is in chaos, right? They've had a natural disasters, and they still haven't recovered mostly from even 2010 earthquake. 
And, you know, Marcia, I spoke to uh, an advocate. Uh, she works for Undocu Black Network. Uh, her name is Brianne Palmer. And she said that she hopes that what happened at Del Rio um, and the attention that it got nationally and internationally, that it will bring attention to immigration in a way where we look at it as not just uh, immigration issue in general, but a black issue. And so often when we talk about immigration in America, uh, black and African migrants are immigrants are not a part of that conversation. But also immigration continues to be that thing that that the, the can that gets kicked down the road where every session in Congress, there's there are promises that we have to make changes to our immigration policy and nothing gets done. Congress is in a gridlock right now. How do we hold our elected officials Resp uh, accountable and ensure that we actually do have just policy that actually works. We have some of our activists who are very close to congressional members, and I am also. But like I said, when we place somebody on the Hill, particularly, we have given them the precious value of our vote. They're not our kings and queens, our prince and princesses. And let me be straight, no chase. I tell people I have no relatives on the Hill. I have no Uncle Sam or any aunties. I have servants. And I expect for them to serve and do the will of the people. And most of those individuals got in with the Black vote. And so surely, as a Black, most Black folks are, we are concerned about all of our fellow citizens, but but because there seem to be this doorstopper when it comes to anything black in this country, not only immigration, but voting rights and, and so on and so forth, then if you're gonna make about tribalism, then let me talk about my tribe. And I am unapologetic about that. So we have to keep raising the noise. Anybody who's at that border, right? And who is deported should be a reason for a call if other people are getting in. And we have to also have some of our individuals who are very expert in foreign policy and immigration laws to help us to write those things, something that I'm talking to some other fellow social activists. So if you don't have a plan, let us give you a plan. And let me say this too, because I've worked with presidents on Haiti and because I've seen what other presidents have done in Haiti and have enriched themselves. And because I've seen how every congressional uh, 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 administration or presidential administration has not done well with Haiti. It's not that it's Democrats or Republic. It's just across the board, which is amazing to me. So it's not like it's around a party divide. It's just the solid black. We hate Haiti. Haiti doesn't matter to us. And that's what we must address with both parties. Mm. And so like, <laughs> I, I think for me, again, as a layperson who's not really super well versed in, in all of these international relations, um, but again, just watching a lot of the images that we saw, you know, even from people's things just un, un, like not even labeled, just thrown and strewn about, which was just another slap in the face. Um, but then you're also hearing, you know, but this country is is and really this administration has pledged to allow Afghans, you know, to come into this country because they're fleeing the Taliban and, and all of this other stuff. Um, how would you like to personally see this, the Biden-Harris administration, like what are their first, I don't know, two to three steps of addressing this crisis and let's get some border equity going where it's, you know, let, let's not just ignore the black folks, you know, you know what I mean? And, and we're we're maybe leaning towards the brown ones. Like, come on, like, what, what are we doing here? Well, when we saw and this is Northfront, like I said, I'm concerned as a global citizen about 
all of God's uh, children, right? And I do do work in the Middle East. In fact, I'm part of Coalition of Hope where we actually rescued some of the individuals that this administration left behind. Over 1,500 people still there in the country at the same time working on leaving some of the woes of the Haitians who were suffering inside the country who did not come along that track to, to Del Rio, right? So what we have to basically, you know, realize is that we're all tied to the ship together, right? And I tell people that our foreign policies dictate our domestic policy. So we shouldn't be as surprised that domestically blacks are always behind the eighth ball. And so would Haitian immigrants. But when we see that you can left Afghanis in and they have their Taliban, well, unfortunately, I'm from the city of Chicago, straight, no chaser. There's more shooting in Chicago by us to us. And, you know, and all Black Lives Matter. It shouldn't have to be just because of the blue. It's on the black and blue. And it's something I've worked on ever since 1985 to get us to have this tribal accord or treaty amongst ourselves. Then, so, yeah, so if you can do it for the Afghanis, then you should be able to do it for the Haitians. And not only that, our vice president went to Atlanta, right, around the hate of the Asians. And this is no affront to that situation. The next week, there was some sort of bill, law, act. There was something that was given. Well, at least you kind of felt you had some form of banner. Well, at the same time, we have to continue to watch. Do we still have our voting rights here in America? So all I can say is that everybody has to be an activist. I would tell my students at Fisk, where I teach a class on global uh, global leadership and culture diplomacy, that we used to say back in my day about the butterfly effect. It sounds so nice that the butterfly wings fluttering, but right now we have some dragon wings and they are spewing fire and virulent winds until we will all be impacted if we do not harness this energy of love, you know, for one another and to see Black people not as just the poor, poor Black folks, but see our humanity, right? And I think that that's a lack that people just don't see our uh, our humanity. And a lot of the Haitians too, not only did they have their belongings thrown down and unlabeled, some of them may have been out of the country for a very long time waiting for an opportunity to come to America. So they went back to Haiti, right? It's like, I go back to Southside Chicago. I don't know this place anymore. And that's what they're saying too. And I'm quite sure they didn't have enough interpreters there for people who speak Creole and not French. So it just showed again, our, our concern. And I was furious at uh, the Johnny come lately attitude toward this administration. And even though they say that they're going to investigate the press secretary, we're going to investigate it. So I went on Twitter as the irreverent woman that I, I am said, this, what happened was they got the notice late. They came, they were pushed back. And all of a sudden, like a wild, wild West movie, they were covered by, you know, surrounded by, you know, covered wagons were surrounded by the people with, with on horses and whips. And someone said, well, they weren't whips. They were rings. Well, any, my mother, you know, she would be uh, kind of put in jail. Now she used to take a, a clothesline and whip us, right? The, the operative word is whip. It's not the, the apparatus. It's the motion. And it's just, the bit. I was triggered. I mean, I was triggered by what we imagine in our mind. And for those who've watched those films on slavery and, and those who have gone to those places in America where we've seen it, I was triggered by it. And to see these children crying, I remember, you know, when some of the Middle East uh, situations where they show the child bloated, bo- bloated bodies on the shore, to see these Black babies crying, I know that that's going to scar their mind. 
even more. So again, I'm raising hell. We have to raise hell because that's the only thing that can get attention seemingly with any administration, right? Is to continue to raise hell. Do not be so distracted by these other weapons of mass destruction, uh, distraction that we forget the people of Haiti because they may be out of the news, but their circumstance is continuous. You know, you mentioned, you know, those images and how it triggered you. And I can't help but think, what if the media was not there to capture those images? We wouldn't even be having this conversation at the White House right now, which makes me want to ask you, uh, do you think this is a systematic problem within CBP and ICE and these eight, these U.S. agencies? So like, because it seems like no matter who's in the White House, the, the, the mistreatment of Haitian and black migrants and immigrants um, is, has been going on for decades. You know, it's similar to the uh, industrial prison complex, right? That people in small towns, mostly non-blocks or people of color, income comes off of the incarceration of people of color or blocks and other minorities. The same thing with ICE and these other so-called agencies. And then we have to also look at, you know, who is the HR person? Who is hiring the people? Just like with the police department, why are they so evil or seemingly so evil or so mean? And because I do work with the military, I know that there's a disproportionately number of ex-military personnel who are suffering from post-traumatic stress. They're gun happy. They're trigger happy. Nobody's checking their mental facilities. And we don't know to hide the hierarchy, even among the people in these international agencies or even our own agencies who are supposed to have this empathy or to regulate or to capture, send back or negotiate or determine who gets in, who gets out, who can sit in, in like, uh, uh, limbo or purgatory, so to speak, and who gets chance to actually go to the to the altar and build uh, bend down and take the bread and the wine. Okay. So I think that again, what I tell my students at Fisk and what I try to tell all my American citizens and what I'm telling my my younger social activists is that you're you have to be aware of what is happening globally and to understand what is happening to us. And Haiti has proved that to us at this particular border. So now the people are not there. Are they they're out of sight, but they should never be out of mind. There's nothing until we really start not being so, you know, I won't say trigger happy and just responding on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook about stuff. It really is incumbent upon us to really study the situation so we can speak articulate this so-called truth to power. Right. It can't be back in the day, the, the living color, you know, the guy in the jail cell talking, you know, crazy. We really have to know it because what I have found out, which was amazing to me, that there were a lot of members on our foreign affairs who never traveled internationally, never spoke another language, not even their top eight. They would go and visit their countries. And then, too, when they go on congressional delegations, which uh, they have not been doing so much, of course, since COVID and few years prior to COVID, that they're treated like rock stars so they can never feel the woes of the people. That's the reason why when I was in my first a congressional uh, delegation to Haiti, I told Congressman Conyers, I don't travel like that. I have to know what is happening with the people. And that is what it's informed me. If I did not take that upon myself, I didn't know how to push off and push back on this presidential foundation that was supposed to be in there 
to help, I would not have been able authentically to help the Haitians themselves. So it's really incumbent on us that when we have a passion for something that it's not about a hashtag, it really is having a deep rooted understanding of the plight of the people, what the causes of it were, what systemic, systemic things really are, so that we know how to fight intelligently. Knowledge is the best arsenal that we can have in our weaponry, right? It is. And, you know, and Jaren, Jaren kind of touched on this a little bit because I find it, it's for me, it's a double-edged sword. Uh, we are the media. So I'm always like, I'm always like, you know, I'm always like, yeah, you know, we did our thing, but I'm also kind of like, mm, but we also kind of contributed to this as well. Because when you think about it, when it comes to Haitian immigrants or, or Haitian migrants, especially in this country, there has always been this story, this air that they are diseased, unskilled poor, uh, criminals, you know, all of this. And I mean, like the media has been responsible for that. And when I say the media, I'm talking about news. I'm talking about entertainment. I'm talking about, you know, like all of these, all of these things, I guess my final question to you would be, what would be your charge to those of us in the media, you know, to, to change that narrative? How can we also help? Because yeah, you know, some lay person, but not really. (laughs) get you after the earthquake i remember calling cnn and, and taking uh issue with anderson cooper because he always want to talk about poor haiti well at the same time you have very wealthy white people at the same time in these villages when you go to haiti when you go to port au prince if you go toward the airport you will see where haitians don't own it but some of the haitians have home you were homes that you would swear you were in the swiss alps right but there were children after the earthquake coming from under those tents and crisp blouses, big white bowls, tattered, water-torn uh, books, appreciating ev- uh, education. And I think that, again, it's by design to say that these people are criminals. Well, we're criminals. I mean, you know, so every country has their good and their bad and their ugly. But the, stigma, uh, the stigmatizing of Haiti is so deeply rooted. That's the reason why I tell my students, too, and what I would tell media persons, right? I've been in places before the G20, G8 in London, spoke to and at the United Nations and been in the room where it happened. If you're not in the room where it happens, then you don't really know what's going to happen and how they translate it on the outside, right? And I also tell my students that it is incumbent upon you to go beyond the infinite finiteness of Google, because even though it seems infinite to the student, it's still finite because of somebody else's thought and how they want you to navigate the course into which you're trying to explore, the course that you're going to go on for true scholars. So I even would tell media, you have to look at other journals. You have to start uh, reading like foreign affairs journals, the Georgetown foreign affairs journals, and take time to go where the people sit. I'm now in Nashville. And the first thing I want to know, where's the international community. I found it in Uber drivers, right? Ethiopian, Middle Eastern, Brazilian. And I said, where do you congregate? And I found out every place where these people congregate together, whether it's in the church, uh, in their bazaars, wherever, so I can continue to take, have an authentic hold on what is happening in their world, because most of our agencies will not give you the correct information. And I don't really push back on the media, you only know most of the time, especially for the mainstream media, is what somebody's putting on the teleprompter. That uh, idea of really reporting news is 
far gone and something that I hope that journalists, especially the journalists that I'm working with, take that more to heart, especially the younger students, so that we can get to some form of truth and not spew truth what the media owners, the big ones, want you to say or do. Think about it. Colin Powell, I told my students, were reading this whole lie about weapons of mass destruction. You could see on his face that he was reading a lie. I said, if if the chief joint of staff is reading a lie, is given a lie, what do you think that you're given that you don't need to explore a little bit more? Listen, the room where it happens is not just the Hamilton song. Okay? It is not just the Hamilton song. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it is. We must be in the room where it happens. We have to take our seats there. And that's what I do through mentorship. Uh, my mentorship with my students, I make sure they go to United Nations, they're the United Nations model, because I told them United Nations is United Nations, but all countries not in it. So is it really united? It's tribal as well. Wow, wow, wow. Marcia, I mean, I don't even know, I, you have given us such a wealth of knowledge and we really appreciate you coming to chat with us. And I think that this is gonna be uh, so impactful for our listeners. And I really hope that they take what you said um, and take that as a charge to, to do what we can to ensure that we better um, the conditions for, for Haitian migrants and, and all black migrants and all black immigrants. So thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. Can I end with this? When Dr. King marched, he marched with knowledge about the people to whom he was advocating for. And that's what we need to do. Knowledge is power. Even when we try to be adjudicator for others. Goodness. Well, I mean, the bottom line is what's happening at the border is a humanitarian crisis and the symptom of a long, complicated relationship between the U.S. and Haiti. Now, more than ever, it's time to unite and support our brothers and sisters trying to make their way to safety. To see our original reporting and to stay on top of what's going on at the border and beyond, you can always head to our website, www.thegrio.com. Marcia, this has been amazing. You have definitely helped inform me and I'm sure our listeners as well. Thank you so much. Thank you all for having me. I hope you have me back on other issues. We want to remind our listeners to please support your local Black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The business that we'll highlight this week is Papa Rosier Farms. Founded in the Bushwick neighborhood of Brooklyn back in 2018, Papa Rosier Farms is an all-natural beauty line that sources its ingredients from their family-owned farm in Haiti and makes them at their farmhouse in Brooklyn. Every purchase from the Papa Rosier Farms has a positive impact and is an investment in education, agriculture, and the people of Haiti. To learn more about how you can support this business, head to their website at www.papa-rosier-farms.com. That's www.papa-r-o-z-i-e-r.com. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments. We love those to podcast at thegrio.com. The Dear Culture podcast is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Blue Taluzma and co-produced by Taji Sr. and Abdul Kadus.